You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, good morning, River. I am uh, so glad to be with you this morning. I know we're not really together, but I'm hoping that in some small way that this uh, makes us feel connected. And uh, we're recording this, I think it's Friday morning. And uh, I just want to, before I share with you out of First Thessalonians, just wanted to give you another update. It's week three of Corona and uh, everyone that I've talked to is doing well. Uh, kind of a, a, I think most people have gotten used to the new normal, just dealing with the day-to-day strains and all the things of life. Um, and we're uh, expecting, we're hoping next week as a church to shift from a video recorded um, session. We're hoping to go with a live session at 10 o'clock. So we'll send an email out and confirm that. We're gonna test some things this week. So uh, if that goes well, we'll plan to be live at 10 o'clock next Sunday. And we're doing that to encourage some uh, connections among people. So we're hoping that, uh, that people will engage and make some comments, uh, even prayer requests. And so I'm hoping if that goes well, to be able to read some of those and to pray and to have some immediate real-time kind of interaction. And really we want that to be kind of a dry run for our church, honestly, for Easter Sunday morning that's coming up the the week after. But uh, as I don't know how your week has gone, but things I think are a little more, you know, as people are getting a little more tired, a little more discouraged, I'm hearing a lot of conversations happening and people asking questions, you know, why is this happening? What's going on? And I'm hearing some tremendous opportunities to share the gospel. Um, I want to suggest that this week the tone may change a bit. Uh, I don't really know, but I'm hearing already that, you know, more people that I know that have loved ones that actually have corona um, and hearing people being hospitalized. So don't be surprised if uh, the tone goes from... uh, you know, more of uh, inconvenience and disgruntlement and challenges that people are facing and why can't they have their birthday parties or why can't they gather with family, that there's gonna be some real sadness and sorrow that people are gonna face. So I say that to, uh, to encourage, encourage us as a church to pray for them, but to also to be ready to share uh, words of encouragement, challenge, hope uh, in the middle of all of that. So, uh, so having said that, I wanna turn our attention this morning to First First Thessalonians chapter five, and uh, we're kind of wrapping up this week and next week, just before Easter, the last chapter of, of Thessalonians, and Paul shares with us a laundry list. There's like 20, th- 20 things that he just rapid fire shares, and rather than going through all of that this week, we're kind of kind of break it up into a couple of things. But what he's really doing is he's sharing with us about what it means for us to be as a church. Kind of ironic, we can't be together and we're talking about this. Um, but he's really helping us to understand how we together function as a family, as a church. You know, as we video record these things and as we even engage online, and we're hoping to do, be able to make some of those things available with our life groups as well. And we're uh, working on the tech side of those things uh, also. Uh, one of the, I, I think there's some things in there that we're gonna consider even after all of this is over uh, as a church so that we can engage people uh, who aren't able to be here on Sunday morning. But one of the risks that I notice is that, you know, it's increasingly convenient to just stay home and, you know, to watch a church service online. And right now that's the best that we can do. But after this is over, one thing that I want us to notice is that's not good enough. Have you ever, you know, ever thought about what the difference is between a fan and a player on a team? You know, both the fan and the player want the team to win. 
both know the stats, they know what's going on, they know how well they're doing, what the season looks like, both have expectations and hopes, and, and even the fan can wear the jersey and get the uniform, if you will, but the difference between a fan and a team member, a player, is participation. That's really the one difference. And so we're going to see this morning in this passage that God calls us as a church to not be fans, to not sit back and watch, but to actually be participants involved in one another's lives and there to encourage and help one another. So look at 1 Thessalonians with me, if you would, in chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 12 and following. So I encourage you to open your Bible and to, uh, if you don't have it, hit the pause button and read along with me. So the Bible says this, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Paul tells us this morning, as we look at this, how we are to relate as a church body to the leaders that God has placed in our church. He says that we are to respect those who are among us and who are over us in the Lord. Not just over us, but over us in the Lord. And they are to be highly esteemed because of their work. Now, who is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about simply pastors? I think it includes pastors. The, the English Standard Version, when it says those that are over you, that, that verb, the over you, means those who direct, those who lead, those who also care and provide. So it kind of has that shepherding uh, focus. It's, it, it's those individuals who are leading us together as a church body, as a church flock, those who are providing, those who are caring, those who are protecting along the way. Uh, that's the natural picture of what a shepherd is supposed to be. It's not limited to pastors, but it, it seems to be focused there and at least uh, is prioritized there. And so Paul tells us as a church that we are to respect them and to esteem them highly for their sake. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, we talk often about love and how the Christian faith at the very heart of it is all about love. But there's another aspect of the Christian faith that I want us to not miss that the Bible is consistent with and that the Christian faith is one of respect, one that we are to respect one another. We are to respect one another as fellow Christians. We're to respect people in the world. We're to respect and honor, acknowledge those in authority above us. Not just, not even thinking here spiritual authority, I'm thinking in the home, children to parents, that's really where respect and love and authority should be learned and exhibited and, and grown into so that we then can carry that the rest of our lives. But the Bible in Romans tells us where to respect the authorities uh, of the people around us. I was convicted this week. Uh, much like others, I'm sure there's been once or twice you've kind of privately kicked and screamed. I hope you haven't ranted and raved on Facebook. That's not healthy for lots of reasons. 
but I complained about our, some decisions that our governor was making and some of the things that were happening. And just, you know, at the end of the day, I didn't like the impact of what those meant to me personally and what they meant and how they were, you know, the ramifications were around us. And I was convicted that that's not what God calls us to do. In fact, he calls us to respect those who are in authority. The reason Paul is having to take time to tell the church to make sure you respect, respect and esteem those is because they were struggling with that. I don't know about you, but when I struggle to respect and to honor those who are in authority over me, it's usually because I don't like the decisions they're making and I don't like the impact of those decisions on me. I think that things should be done differently. And so what Paul is challenging you and for me, and this is in a church setting, this is not just amongst Christians generally, although it certainly applies to that, but he's really writing to a local church and writing in particular to those individuals who collectively are in community and committed and connected to one another. He's saying, guys, we need to be careful along the way that we recognize those individuals that, that are there shepherding or engaging and that we don't dismiss and somehow in the process as decisions get made and directions are moved forward that, that we lose the respect that we should have for them in their roles. Many students, as you guys watch this, uh, you're going to be going and moving on in life and as you marry and move to other cities and other states and wherever God leads you in life, I expect, I encourage you as you become and as you grow in those ministries and in those places of responsibility and leadership, that you respect and you esteem those leaders among, in your church. Now, notice the respect that God has for us. We don't respect people and esteem them because of a title that they hold. We actually are to respect them, if you look in the passage, because of the work and the labor, the, the heavy lifting that they do. The, the, the care that they provide, the leadership responsibilities. Anyone that has ever led anything knows that it's difficult to lead because how do you, the, the bigger the family, the bigger the organization, the bigger the ministry, the more people that are involved, the harder it is to meet everyone's expectations and to have all of that go well. It's difficult. So Paul is telling us that our respect really should be for people and, and uh, who are, working hard, who are diligent, who are laboring. How do you know when you should follow a pastor or a leader in a church setting in particular? Well, there's a few clues in this. Notice that, that we should be listening to, esteeming, and if we're esteeming and listening to, then we're following those individuals and those teachings, people that are working hard. You know, if you see your pastor, and that includes me or Dan or any other pastor if you're in a church, that, that are lazy. Well, there's a different thing that we should be doing. The, our respect of them doesn't mean that we say, well, we're supposed to respect them because that's their office and their title. We respect the work more than we do the title. Sometimes people want a title more than they want the responsibility or the work. And here at River, we actually try to do the opposite. We want people to be faithful and to serve and to labor and prove themselves. And in the middle of that, give them the responsibilities 
and whatever titles need to be conferred to just make it clear what their role is, that happens later. Rather than just giving somebody a title and saying, okay, everybody needs to just, you know, to, to follow them because they have this title, it's the exact opposite. The, what we value is the labor and the care. So you follow a pastor, you follow a leader when they're working hard and you listen to them when they also have your best interest at heart. That's the second piece. We all know that not every leader has our best interest at heart. We don't have to think hard about how easily that happens. Um, and it happens in the church as well. You see, God has a responsibility for us in the church that we lead in such a way as, as leaders for the best interest of others, not for our best interest, not for our what suits us, not what works out best for us, but what works out best for the individuals. When we see people who are working hard, who are looking out for our interest and spiritually uh, in this way that, 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 that is for our good, then those individuals are worthy of, of being followed, worthy of being listened to, worthy of the respect that they deserve, even if they admonish us. Let's face it, that's why it's a challenge. Paul is saying there's going to be people in the church that, that have a responsibility and that we expect to correct, to, to not just um, cheer us on or not just encourage us. There's a role of spiritual leaders that is definitely encouraged and cheering and that kind of thing. In fact, we'll see it more in a minute. But there's also a role of admonishment. Hey, that's not wise what you're doing. Hey, that, you need to cut that out. Whenever we are kind of put in our place by anybody in, in the world, I don't care if it's kid, the parent to a kid, if it's uh, you get pulled over, you know, and, and, and the officer says, I'm sorry, you may have thought you were doing okay, but you, what you were doing was wrong. There's a piece of us that kick at that. We don't want people telling us what to do. We don't want people correcting us. That's common to all of human nature. But in the process, when we do that, we miss what God is trying to do and speak into our lives through those leaders. And in the process, we begin to marginalize and put aside those individuals in those roles. So Paul, as he talks about a healthy functioning church, he says, guys, there are people in those places that you've recognized, and that's how we do it at River. There's no, nobody outside tells us what to do. The church body, together, we make those decisions about who's in, in, in those levels of responsibilities uh, with us. He says, we need to, to follow and listen. One last thing I say of this before I move on. I want you to notice an interesting balance that the Bible tells us here clearly. It's easily missed, and, and I missed it at first when I was reading it. But notice that these laborers, these pastors, these others, even leaders that in those moments are exercising authority with us, they are to be people who are among us in verse 12 and also over us. There's a balance here. Every pastor should be a pastor among as peers and with people in the church. And every leader in the church should be just one of the people among. But there's also balance that they have a responsibility to be over and to have that responsibility of caring for, of leading, looking after, and protecting uh, that as well. Some people want, you know, pastors just to be buddy, buddy, friends, friends. Uh, there was a movement a number of years ago that, you know, people wanted to, be, to say as a parent, well, I just want them to like me. I want to be their friend. Do you want your kid to like you? 
but you are not a peer to your child. They're, you have authority over them. Now, you have a responsibility to not use that authority for your own good. In fact, your authority should be always exercised for the good of them. But you can't parent your child well if you're just trying to be a peer. So there is a balance in that even as, as, as and it shifts because a pastor is not a parent in any way, shape, or form to a church. But we pastors and leaders should be among one another as friends, but they also ought to be able to step into that role and lead. Some pastors struggle with leading and they just want to you know, be among the, the, the family. And some pastors want to lead to the point that they become autocrats or dictators and they don't want to be among. And so as leaders, I would caution us as a church, as a church family, that we want to have a balance in those things and, and have a, a level of mutual responsibility. And so every one of us are a part of this. Even Dan and I uh, are not exempt in this role. In fact, we speak into each other's lives. We've given each other that permission and demonstrated that, that, uh, that we speak and admonish appropriately into one another's life as we should. So this is something that it applies to all of us. So that's what is necessary as far as a healthy functioning church from a leadership role. Now, I want you to notice something that's interesting with that is in, as he goes on into verse 13, he says, and be at peace among yourselves. Verse 14, he shifts gears a little bit. So verse 13, the tail end of it, he's not, he's still talking about this leadership aspect into us as a church body. He's like, hey, respect the leaders, esteem them and be together as a church you know, together and recognizing as a unit that there's people that need to lead. But in the middle of that context, be at peace together. When two people are in tension with one another, I don't care if it's in a marriage relationship or if it's a friendship, co-workers, when there's tension in that, there's something that's not right. This idea of peace is taking two people who are separated and putting them together where tensions are removed, where there's not this underlying, underlying currents are gone. Sometimes in marriages, it's easy for two people to love each other and to be committed to one another, but there to be underlying currents and tensions. And what Paul is telling us, he's like, be at peace. Those things need to go away. Those things need to be dissipated. That when there's those little tit for tat and those little squabbles that are coming up, that we're not at peace with one another. What he's telling us is that the church body should be a people who know how to live at peace together. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, is, now make sure you get your opinion heard in the church. Make sure that you get what you want done in the church. Make sure you get your point across. Make sure that everything in the church is something that you agree with. He, he doesn't say that. He says, you guys figure it out, but make sure that you value the relationships one with another more than you do all the stuff around you. You see, it boils down to that. I don't care whether it's a church. I don't care if it's a friendship thing. I don't care if it's a, a, a church family thing, if it's a marriage thing, if it's a, any relationship. You and I have one of two choices. We can either choose to have what we value, have our expectations met, to have what we want done or accomplished, to have our way, 
or we can choose to have the relationship as what's most important. You can't do both. One of those has to have a priority. And so what Paul is telling us is we had better have as a family the priority of one together being uh, together. Now, he's not talking about issues of truth or, or lies or error or spiritual heresy. He's not talking about that. He's talking about all the other non-important stuff. Let's face it. Most of the stuff that we get disgruntled over or bothered by is the small stuff. It's not the important stuff. It's the small stuff. And Paul says, that all needs to go away. Together as a church body, don't be all agitated. And when there's tension, there's agitation, and they're not happy. And what happens, you share it with somebody else, and then they get not happy. And before you know it, you've got six of your friends that are all not happy and disgruntled at somebody over here, and it causes factions in the church. And Paul is like, that junk needs to go away. Now, I'm grateful. I truly don't know of any factions or any of this stuff going on in our church. So this is kind of like us taking vitamins more than medicine. This is like us making sure we got our essential healthy food coming into us, that we're healthy. This is not, this is not medicine. This is not painkillers. This is not an antibiotic trying to kill whatever's going on inside of us. So hear me as a pastor. I'm not correcting anything going on today. Actually, I might be a little bit. If I'm correcting anything, it's what might be going on in your own personal life and your own relationships out of church. I don't know of any currents going on inside of our church right now. And I'm sharing this because I don't ever want that to happen anymore. It, it will, but we need to work through them when they surface as quickly as we can and move forward with it. So Paul says, have leaders that are leading well, working hard, serving, and respect them in the middle of that, that for your best interest, and together as a church family, work it out and figure out where you're headed as a church, as a church body. Second thing I want you to notice what Paul says. Now that he's talked to us about leaders, he tells us about how to handle people who are struggling. He, know, he shares several different kinds of people with different struggles in verse 14. He says this, he says, we urge you, and we urge you, brothers, don't take this lightly, urge you, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. He's talking about people in the church that are struggling, people that, that have challenges that they're, they're wrestling with, they're having a difficult time living out their life and, and living out their faith. And we as a church body are responsible to help one another. He tells us to admonish the idle. That word idle doesn't mean just people who are being lazy, not doing anything. It can involve that, but it's more than that. That word was actually used for people who were, who were doing their own thing who were marching to their own beat, if you will. Not, not, I'm not talking about creativity. I'm just talking about they had their own agenda. So they are not together with the church family. They are going off. They're, kinda, they're calling their own set of plays. They're living their life completely out of line with what Christians should be living like. They are living in a way that is actually disruptive to the church family. They're living in a way that is, or serving in a way that is running counter to what the church is doing. And so it's disruptive to that. And Paul says, when that begins happening as a church, we have a responsibility to admonish those individuals. We have a responsibility to speak up, speak out. He doesn't say encourage them. 
He says encourage the faint-hearted. I'll talk about that in a minute. He says they actually need to be warned. They need to be corrected. They need to be to, to hear that what they're doing is inappropriate, unhelpful, unhealthy for them, and really messing things up. So Paul says when we have a church, and this is going to happen because we're all a bunch of individuals trying to learn how to be collective together. He says when you have those individuals calling their own plays, or maybe they're just doing their own thing completely, disregarding and against the church. This isn't against freedoms. We're not talking about that. This isn't saying that, you know, that, you know, everything has to be approved by a church. I'm not talking about those things. But when individuals are doing things that are disruptive in their ministries, disrupting what the church is doing, where it's headed, and even its leaders, Paul says they need to be warned. The next challenging person facing challenges is were to help or to encourage the faint-hearted. Literally, just like that word faint and hearted are two separate words glued together to give us an idea, fainting inside the heart. The original word of this means is the word little and soul put together. Literally, little soul. What he's saying is, is encourage those who are worried. Encourage those who are fearful. And encourage those who are facing anxieties. Those who in their faith are falling down, who are faint-hearted, who are worried and afraid and paralyzed and anxious about what's happening and what's going on. Notice he tells us not to chastise them, admonish them. He actually tells us differently. He says, get up close to them, love on them, and encourage them. Encourage them. Don't berate them. Don't say, what's wrong with you? Or, Are you just dumb because you're just struggling with this? He says, no, we actually should encourage them and help them to see that there's all kinds of hope that they get that they can have in Jesus. Now, in the middle of us helping people give them hope and encouragement and strength, I want us as Christians to recognize there's two different kinds of people in this world. We want to give hope to everybody for sure. But we also, because we know God and we believe the Bible, that real hope comes to those who know Jesus. You know, ultimately, when people don't have Jesus in their life, there's no eternal hope for them. And so we want to offer hope to them, but the hope that we give is a hope that they can know God, that God can work in their life that God wants to, but they need to come to God on God's terms. That God's terms is that he, he, he loves them, but He recognizes their sin, and He wants to forgive them, and He wants to encourage them, and He wants to protect them and to care for them, but He can't. He's not their father until they surrender their life to Jesus. And once they do that, once they acknowledge their sin and trust Jesus as Lord, then he becomes their father. They become his child. And then all of the promises of Scripture become theirs. Until that time, those Scriptures don't apply to them. So we in the middle of the world around us, as we share hope and encouragement to people, we need to tell them and help them to know who God is, that God is a God who saves, that God is a God who cares, that God is a God who protects, and God is a God who, to whom they can turn. But as they turn to Him and start taking those steps, that's the first step of several steps. 
So as we encourage those who are faint-hearted, let's recognize there's two different types of people we're talking about. It's something very different when we're talking about those who know Jesus, and that we need to point them to Scripture and remind them of who God is and His character and what He's done for them and how that they have been provided for and their future secure and all of those we need to bring to bear for them. The others, we're actually educating them. Hey, you may want to see what God has to say about this. You may want to see what God promised is to those who know Him. Because what God's trying to do is to draw you. He's trying to bring you step by step into His family, into His family where He can lavish on you. So be careful that we don't, as we give out encouragement, that we don't accidentally or even intentionally just share God's Word in a way that makes it sound like everybody in the world around us has all these promises. I, I wish that were true. It's not. So Paul tells us in the church setting, though, we have a responsibility to encourage those who are struggling, to not blow them off, to not say, oh, they just, they're so, so discouraged and worried so much, but we have a responsibility to get up close, to put the pause button in our life and encourage them. Encourage them. Next thing he says, he says, help the weak. I love that word help. It has the idea of grabbing hold of someone and not letting go. You ever seen like the cartoons, you know, or I guess even some of the, the movies, it's so far-fetched what people do, you know, like you can catch somebody who's fallen over a cliff and hold them and not fall off yourself. It's absurd. But that's the picture of what this word is. It's the word that those who are weak in their faith, that have never grown up for whatever reason, have not matured, and they're just weak, we in the church have a responsibility to grab them with both hands and not let go. We're to be strong for them. We're to grab them, not write them off, not neglect them, not just, oh, let's just, you know, they're just doing what they're doing. But we have a responsibility to, to grab them, to protect them, to care and to pull them out. If they're caught in sin, that's a part of that that grabbing means. If they're, they're in the middle of the weakness as they've gone back and, you know, falling into those things, we're to jump in and rescue and grab them out of that. Jude talks about those kinds of things. And then finally, he says we're to be patient with them all. See, all of these people require patience. I like the word, another way to translate that word is long-suffering suffering long. That's why we don't like patience, because it means we have to suffer, and it lasts a long time. What Paul is telling us as a church, if we're a church family, that we're going to have to suffer long with certain people, one another, that we have to recognize that's a part of our life. We do that in our homes, in our families, in our relationships, and we should expect that in our church family as well. You see, if you're busy holding somebody and you've got them with both hands, are your hands free to do anything else? They're not. They're tied up. If you're busy trying to encourage someone, invest and pour into them, then it means you're not able to do some other things that you might would prefer to do. So what Paul is telling us, guys, if we're going to be truly a church family, that we have to say no to some of our agenda and our time and our expectations and be patient and invest in others. Third thing, and I'm done, and this one's going to be faster. 
Not only do we have responsibility as we function with leaders and together with one another, we have a responsibility to help one another who are facing special challenges in their spiritual life. But third thing, notice how we're supposed to relate to everyone around us. He says, see in verse 15, see that no one repays anyone for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. He says, guys, you need to, all of you need to be looking together, one another in the flock, policing, if you will, not, not really policing, but checking up and making sure everybody's okay and make sure that there's nobody in the church family who's doing wrong to somebody else. That's not just a job of the pastor. He says the church should, together, everyone should be making sure that we are not repaying evil to somebody else, but instead when somebody has done evil, whether intentionally or unintentionally is irrelevant, that we have a responsibility to give, do good back to them. And we should be making sure that as a church body, there's no revenge going on. There's no grudge matches happening. There's no retaliation happening. There's nobody who's getting their feelings hurt, and because of it, they're lashing out and doing something else. There's none of that. Paul says that's, that's out of bounds and out of line, and all of us as a church family should recognize that. We live in a world that says tit for tat, you know. You poke me in the eye, I'm going to sock you in the jaw, you know. You take my eye out, I'm going to, you know, cut you off at the knees. And God says, that's not my way. As a church family, we know there are going to be feelings that get hurt, things that are going to happen, people that are going to get, you know, feel like they've been slighted or neglected or offended. When that happens, we have a responsibility to forgive if there's a moral issue, a truth issue involved, a biblical issue, then the Bible gives us a prescription of how to do that, to go speak to that brother. And if they don't hear us, then to take you know, one or two more with us. But the Bible never tells us, never gives us allowances to lash out and to, to publicize to the world you know, all that they've done and to hang them out to dry and to, you know, to, to go after them. In fact, it's the opposite that we should return good to them in the middle of them doing evil to us. Folks, that's the church. That's the type of body that God expects us to be at River. That's the kind of church people that he expects of us, that we do good to one another. I'll wrap up and with this, I guess, make this application to where our virus is and where we are today. I want to encourage you as you think about what we've talked about today, to think about the people around you that maybe are weak, that maybe are faint-hearted, that are worried, that are fearful, that are anxious. What can you do this week that will encourage them? You might not be able to give them a hug six feet away. I haven't tried to give a flipper hug to anybody from six feet. It feels kind of silly to try to do that, you know. Well, the air high five kind of somehow just doesn't cut it. But maybe there's something else you could do. For some of you, maybe it's going old school and writing a little note on a card and dropping it in the mail. To be honest with you, that probably goes a lot longer than email does. Maybe it's picking up the phone and calling them. You see, you've got people at your workplace right now that don't know Christ that represent some of those challenging people. And this might be the opportunity for you to just simply serve them and to show love to them in an acceptable way 
And in the process of time, who knows, but what God will give you an opportunity to share more of why you have hope and a hope in Jesus with them. I want to encourage you also to one another to continue to do that. I've heard just some good things happening among people. I want to encourage you to continue to do that, to intentionally do these things. I feel like part of what's going on, the good out of all of this is God is really intentionally forcing us to recognize, kind of look at what you're doing, people, and look what your priorities are in life, and to really put people and one another as what's most important. So I want to I challenge you to do good to all of those individuals, to reach out to them. Maybe in that last verse I just read, maybe there's somebody that has intentionally tried to dig the knife in you a little bit. Maybe in the middle of this virus is your opportunity to do good to them in the middle of that. I don't know. But whatever God has kind of spoken in your heart as you're listening, and as you've listened to God's word, and as we've unpacked that together, take a moment and pray individually, pray together. If you're gathered with your family or friends or if you're alone, take a moment, pray individually, pray with those that are around you, and ask God to use that in your life. So... If you need something this week, certainly we're together as a church. Honestly, I've been contacting regularly different people most every day, and, and there's really very minimal needs, except for those individuals that still are out of work. So continue to pray for them. We've already helped them as a church, and we'll be talking about more of that as this thing unfolds and potentially more people losing their jobs. But stay connected. Uh, we're together in it, and God will use you tremendously, not only in your own life, but in your, the church family and those around you. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for your power and presence in our life in the middle of all of this. Lord, it's challenging to be, to help the weak, to encourage the faint-hearted. It's challenging to admonish those that are stepping out of bounds, that are just not doing what they should be doing. Um, God, I pray you would give us a holy boldness and a love for people that would help us to do that with each of those individuals. Father, I thank you for a church that is truly unified and people that are on task with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue that. Uh, I pray that for Dan and I as leaders and for the future leaders that you bring or we raise up within River. Help us, Father, to, to just simply follow you. Thank you for all that you've done in our lives and our church family these last several years. And Father, may we this week put you first. Encourage us, Father, I pray in your word and help us to turn around and be that blessing to the people around us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.